All right, my second talk that, I wanted to, uh, that I'm going to be giving this evening is titled, Fight Like an Amateur, Affirmation as Cultural Warfare. That's somewhat of a little bit of an enigmatical title, perhaps, but I hope you'll understand it as we go along. I want to begin with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Just ponder and think about that for a minute. True soldier loves, or true soldier fights, not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. As a pastor, I've been thinking about this this statement in many different contexts, especially in thinking about pastoring and building young families. I think the strongest children who grow up to be warriors in God's kingdom grow up; they fight precisely for this reason. They understand that there is something that they love that is important for them to defend, and so they interpose themselves between it, the danger, and that thing, the thing that they love. And I think this is an orientation that is increasingly difficult for us to understand in our culture. What do I mean by that? I mean simply that, of course, Chesterton is saying that love is more powerful motivator than hate. That's true. But I think he's saying something more as well. There are ultimate commitments involved in the postures that we adopt toward the way that we fight and why we fight. For instance, in the last, in, in our COVID season, we've seen an awful lot of outrage. Outrage is a motivation that is impossible to argue with. When people are outraged, they're not looking for an argument of any sort. And I think that the fact that our culture so quickly resorts to outrage, and we're outraged literally about almost anything, is, an indicative, is indicative of the things that we believe, things that we value, things that we hold. Everything in a culture of outrage is a personal insult. And it's a personal insult because it presumes that everything is subjective. Right? In a world that thinks that every, there is no real truth, the only thing that can be done is shouting louder than the next man. That's why you can't argue about anything because there's nothing to appeal to. There's only my perspective and my feelings and my wounds that are more important than yours. And that's why when we say things that offend people's sensibilities, the response is outrage. It's not an argument. It's simply, stop. Don't do what I don't want you to do. And I'm going to shout louder than you shout. Think of the difference between outrage and courage. Courage is strength in the presence of fear. Courage is not about not being afraid. Courage is rather strength even when you are afraid in the presence of fear. And why, I think the important thing to ask is, Why are you strong? 
Why do you demonstrate strength even when you are afraid and everything in you at one level is saying, run away? It's because there is something greater than your fear. There's something good that is being threatened that you are willing to commit yourself to even at the cost to yourself. Even when fear is urging you to run, you say, no, I'm going to stand and I'm going to stand because there's something more important. There's something that I need to protect. There's something good that I'm going to defend. It's extraordinarily important Courage is only possible in a world of truth. And I mean that in truth outside of your own subjective preferences. Something that you love as being true and right that is more compelling than your fear. It's why it's a Christian virtue. But it's why also our, our age knows so very little about courage. Courage is the true posture of the Christian soldier. So I think it's, this is the reason why it's hard to understand what Chesterton is saying. We fight not because we hate what's in front of us, but because we love what is behind us. I think this is also mirrored in our pursuit of education. Universities have given up largely the pursuit of integrated knowledge that has a core of unity, around which all those diverse subjects are united. That's where we get, of course, the idea of a university. And they focused instead on utilitarian training, largely just pure diversity. Education is increasingly about the pursuit of unconstrained desire, rather than the discipline of desire toward the good. It's giving you what you want. It's interesting. I read an article on the New Yorker many years ago called The Big Uneasy. It was about Oberlin College in New York. And it's a liberal arts college that is completely secular. And it is absolute chaos. I don't know how anybody gets any education done in that college. This writer who's clearly not, this is a very interesting article because it's written by someone who's not religious at all about a college that's not religious at all. Students increasingly show up on campus knowing already how they can and cannot be approached by their teachers, what they may and may not be taught. They're not showing up to be taught. They're showing up in order to manage the people that are supposed to be their instructors. And that's because the desire of the student is paramount. Not something that the desire of the student should be constrained toward. The student should be a, a student being taught. The student is now in the position of the driver, the driver's seat, because his desires, her desires, are the ones that count. And if those desires are countered, well, then, of course, the student is offended in ways that can get teachers tossed out for any number of reasons. It's an interesting, fascinating article. This shift has also been accompanied by, by a shift in what it means to be fulfilled as a human being. Carl Truman illustrates this change 
beautifully in a recent essay that he entitled The Rise of Psychological Man. And I quote, I, once rec I, I recall once being asked by my grandfather, a lifelong sheet metal worker in a Birmingham factory, if he found satisfaction in his work. His answer was that he did indeed find his work satisfying because it enabled him to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. This response is, strikingly, is striking precisely because it is so outwardly directed. Any feelings of satisfaction he had were the result of actions that he did for others. Ask me the same question and my answer would be that I find my work satisfying because I enjoy teaching. It makes me feel good to stand in front of a class and talk about interesting ideas. To be colloquial, it gives me a buzz. The difference is clear. My notion of satisfaction is an inward-directed one. Less to do with my impact on others and more to do with my own immediate feelings. I believe that we're raising a generation of young people who have lost the ability to know the meaning of their actions apart from personal gratification. Expressive individualism sees meaning not in what is the case or what ought to be the case, but only in terms of what I want something to be. What I want to propose today, this evening, is that we, if we want to raise up general, genuinely countercultural men and women who both know what is and what must be done, who both are wise and courageous, we must start with the power of delight rooted in affirmation, which is what I'm going to talk about here. This is what the power of being festal is all about. It's what festivity is all about. The power of delight rooted in affirmation. Let me give you some lessons from my gastronomy class along this line. What do I mean by this exactly? Well, delight, I believe that delight is essentially an outward action because it is an act of affirmation. If you're delighted with something, you are delighted in something that is outside of yourself. We're delighted with someone or something else. That might be a Renoir, a vase of flowers, a 2005 Bordeaux, a Bach fugue, or a bowl of gumbo. But when we are delighted, we are delighted with something external to ourselves. Properly understood, delight is a response to the worth or the goodness of the beloved, the thing loved. That's what delight is. It is a reflection that the thing loved is worthy. In his wonderful book, The Supper of the Lamb, how many of you have read by The Supper of the Lamb, by the way? Okay, good. Well, since I am a teacher, I just can't help but give book recommendations everywhere I go. And one of the books that I would just strongly recommend is, uh, if, 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 this, if this set of talks this weekend moves you in any way, I, I will, if you wish, I, maybe what I'll do is leave a book, a little book list uh, with Randy of the books that I think are, are really central to the things that I'm talking about. So if you want to follow up on any of them and read further for yourselves, you can do that. 
Uh, one of the books that I would highly recommend is the book, The Supper of the Lamb by Father Capon. It's a long, extended meditation on a recipe. That sounds kind of weird, but it is one of the most wonderful theological rambles about food and about creation, which is, in fact, the most important part of the book uh, that I have ever read. Father Capon is an absolutely delightful writer. He has bite and wit. He's like your grandfather who has sharp, well-defined opinions that will offend you and delight you alternately. It's a phenomenal book, and I really recommend it to you. I'm going to read a little bit so you get a sense of what he's like. In his wonderful book, The Supper of the Lamb, Robert Capon gives us our first clue when he describes the qualifi- his qualifications for writing a cookbook. He's a priest, an Anglican priest, but also a chef. He's, he writes, First, I am an amateur. If that strikes you as disappointing, consider how much, how much in error you are and how the error is entirely of your own devising. At its root lies an objection to cookbooks written by non-professionals. It does not, however, apply here. Amateur and non-professional are not synonyms. The world may or may not need another cookbook, but it needs all the lovers, the amateurs, it can get. It is a gorgeous old place, full of clownish graces and beautiful drolleries, and it has enough textures, tastes, and smells to keep us intrigued for more time than we have. Unfortunately, however, our response to its loveliness is not always delight. It is far more often than it should be boredom. And that is not only odd, it is tragic, for boredom is not neutral. It is the fertilizing principle of unloveliness. In such a situation, the amateur, the lover, the man who thinks heedlessness a sin and boredom a heresy is the man you need. More than that, whether you need him, you think you need him or not, he is, by, uh, uh, he is as a man who is bound by his love to speak. If he loves wisdom or the arts, so much the better for him and for all of us. But if he only loves the way his meat browns or onions peel, if he delights simply in the curds of his cheese or the color of his wine, he is, by every one of those enthusiasms, commanded to speak. A silent lover is one who does not know his job. This, then, is the role of the amateur, to look the world back to grace. There, too, is the necessity of his work. His tribe must be in short supply. His job has gone begging. The world looks as if it has been left to the custody of a pack of trolls. Indeed, the world, the world, in the world, the distinction between art and trash, between food and garbage, depends on the presence or absence of the loving eye. Turn a statue over to a boar, and his boredom will break it to bits. Witness the ruined monuments of antiquity. On the other hand, turn a shack over to a lover. And for all its poverty, its lights and shadows warm a little, and its numb surfaces prick with feeling. Capon is saying that an amateur is one who responds to the world with love. He's a lover. And this, of course, implies that the world is worthy of loving. To an amateur, then, To be an amateur is then to affirm that the world is good and worthy of affection. And Capon says that this love 
is what compels the amateur to speak or to act. By definition, then, an amateur is one who loves the world for what it is. That's extraordinarily important. An amateur is someone who loves the world for what it is. Come to that in just a moment and explain why. What's the alternative then? Well, actually, one more thing here. If you've read, if you, if you, many of you haven't read Fathers Capon. So, at the very beginning of his book, he begins with a one. The first chapter of the book is on. A, it's a session. It's called. It's called the long session. And in that chapter, Father Capon says he bids the person who's reading to take an onion, and to sit down and spend an hour with an onion, getting to know the onion. Spend time getting to understand it, studying it, observing it, feeling it, then finally cutting it open and examining its various layers and its ridges and how it's composed mainly of water and thin fibers. I have my students read this chapter. They, 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 he's, just, he's just a romantic and it's fantastic. You come away thinking that onions are the coolest thing on the planet. And when you get, I get done having the students read it, I ask them, so... Why is it that Father Capon has this chapter on onions and how, how amazing they are? Why, why, what is he teaching us in the midst of it? And of course, they, they respond by saying, it's because onions are so cool. But that's not the reason why. As cool as onions are, and they are cool, amazing. That's not why Capon is having you spend an hour with an onion. There's a deeper purpose in mind. He says... Man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. To love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does. And man is not made in God's image for nothing. This leads him to conclude, as he does at the end of the chapter, he says this very interesting statement. Listen to it carefully and see if you can think about what it means. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams of the world. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams of the world. Put Bracket that off and hold that in your mind for a second. What's the alternative? If you're not going to look at things for what they are, what's the alternative? Well, this is what Capon says. Every time man diagrams something, instead of looking at it. Every time he regards not what a thing is, but what it can be made to mean to him. Every time he substitutes a conceit for a fact, he gets grease all over the kitchen of the world. Reality slips away from him, and he is left with the oldest monstrosity in the world, an idol. Things must be met for themselves. Again, the reiteration of that theme. Things must be met for themselves. To take them for their meaning is to convert them into gods and to make them too important and therefore to make them unimportant altogether. Idolatry has two faults. First, it is a slur on the true God. Secondly, it is an insult to true things. Have you ever thought of idolatry that way? We usually focus on the first part, right? That idolatry is an insult to God. Worshiping things that are not God, as if they were. That's an insult to God. 
But Capon makes the profound observation that it's not just an insult to God, it's also an insult to the thing that's worshipped in his place. You're turning something not what it is, but you're turning it into something that it's not. And therefore, you're not treating something for what it is, but you're turning it into something that you have made it to be. What, I, what Capon is fundamentally saying here is that idolatry is the imposition of meaning. Idolatry is the imposition of meaning on things. It's not recognizing what things are in and of themselves for what they are. It's rather putting meaning upon them that they do not possess. It's a lie about true things. Idolatry is the imposition of meaning. What a thing can be made to mean to me. That's what a thing is. It's what I think it is. It's not what it is. It's what I think it is. Meaning is not something, therefore, that is given. Something that you encounter. It is something that is made by us. Meaning comes from human nature, not from God, in other words. It is therefore imposed. It is not received. Now go back to thinking about what he said. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams of the world. That's the reason for the chapter on the onion. Capon wants you to come into contact with the onion because the onion is a real thing not created by you. Not given meaning by you. It exists as being an onion whether you're there or not. It is an onion. That may seem sort of redundant. But his point is, is that it's our job to love things in the world for what they are. And so the, the, the task to study the onion is a task to come face to face with something that is not you. You don't have mastery over that thing. You can cut it up and put it into a stew, yes. But you cannot change the fact that it is an onion made by God to be what it is. Your first job as a lover of the world is to receive what God made and to receive it for what it is. Not for the diagramming meanings that you can impose upon it. Nietzsche was willing to come to the logical conclusion of this idea that meaning is imposed on the world. Because there is no God, meaning, indeed goodness, as an objective reality, does not exist. And because it does not exist, only imposed desires of the individual exist. If meaning is going to be found, you don't get it by looking out at the world. Because there's no maker and designer of the world. The only meaning that can possibly be in the world is the meaning that we supply for it. Do you see that? We are the creators of meaning. We are the ones who decide what things are. Does that sound familiar to you? 
But that's the legacy of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was willing to swallow that and say, yes, the world does not have meaning, only the meaning that we find, that we impose on it, that we find meaningful about it. We can contrast these two different ways of looking at the world this way. The biblical view that Capon expresses this way is that things are precious before they are contributory. Things are precious before they are contributory. What does that mean? It means that things have value before you find them useful. They are useful precisely because God makes them with certain kinds of natures. They are what they are that he designs them to be. They're precious, and therefore they have uses. The secular view, the world, what I would call the modern view, is exactly the opposite of that. Things are precious if they are contributory. If they have use to me, they are precious. If they, put, if they provide no value to me, if I don't see the significance of them, they are not valuable at all. Let me put it a different way. If your aging parents are not useful to you anymore, they don't have any value. If the baby in your womb it's not something that you want or value if it's going to hinder your life or cause complications or, heaven forbid, cost you something. It doesn't have meaning. That's why we call it a fetus. And do you understand that on the modern view of life, it is perfectly right to say that, or right, that's not the right word, it's consistent. If I'm the one who has, finds value in all things, the one, if I'm the one who decides what things are valuable, if, if, if meaning is imposed on the world by me, then what I think is valuable is. And if you think differently, we'll have to duke it out. Which one of us is stronger, ultimately? Now, the price of this kind of... What, what, what we just say? Why, is that, why do we think this? The reason why the, the modern project thinks of the world this way is because it grants unbridled freedom. Freedom is the ability to do what I want to do. Full stop. It's free. But there's a cost to the freedom, and that's the thing I want to dwell on next. The price of this freedom is the loss of the capacity for joy. I want you to think carefully with me about this. Joy isn't simply the feeling of happiness. We're going to talk about this tomorrow when I give my talk on how to be joyful. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Joy has reasons. That's why Paul can say, Rejoice in all things. Rejoice all the time, consistently. You can't be happy all the time. But you can be joyful because joy is the response to something. Joy has reasons. That's the important thing to recognize. It's a response to God's goodness in creation. 
If there is no Creator, then there is no reason for joy because the world is not good in and of itself. Nietzsche really understood this. I admire Nietzsche a great deal. He's one of my favorite philosophers because I think Nietzsche saw the world from his perspective. He, he took his whiskey straight. He didn't water it down. Nietzsche understood this very well. Listen to what Nietzsche said. If it be granted that we say yea to a single moment, then in so doing, we have said yea not only to ourselves, but to all of existence. To have joy in anything, one must approve of everything. If one is to have joy in anything, Nietzsche says, you have to have joy in everything. Because if you have joy in something, it means the thing that you have joy in is good. It has meaning apart from you, the one who imposes meaning on it. And if you affirm one thing, you have to affirm it all. So if you're not going to actually affirm it, you have to deny it. And you have to deny it as thoroughly as everyone else affirms it. It cannot have meaning. It cannot have purpose. It cannot be the source of joy. If you have joy in one thing, the game is up, Nietzsche says. That's how significant it is. And this is why Joseph Pieper, in his wonderful little book on festivals, called In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity, another book that I highly commend if you haven't read it, says that the festival spirit is this, in its essential core, is nothing but the living out of this affirmation. The affirmation that the world is good and that God made it good. To celebrate a festival means to live out for some special occasion and in some uncommon manner the universal assent to the world as a whole. The reason for joy that undergirds everything is that God made the world good. He is good, and the world is good. And therefore, we have reason to rejoice. Listen to how Joseph Pieper explains the difference this affirmation makes by contrasting the Christian martyr versus the secular naysayer. And I love this particular passage, and I'm going to ask you to listen carefully because Joseph Pieper is a little he's dense. But this is a rewarding passage, really worth thinking. He's contrasting the Christian martyr, who in the Christian martyr, everything's going wrong. He's being killed. On the other hand, the secular person who has everything, he's not martyr at all. So we take the the Christian on his worst day and the secularist on his best day. And this illustrates the contrast well. Pifer is saying, if if it can be true of the martyr on his worst day, it's true all the time. Listen carefully. Such affirmation, the affirmation of the world as good, is not won by deliberately shutting one's eyes to the horrors of the world. Rather, it proves its seriousness by its confrontation with historical evil. The quality of this ascent is such that we must attribute it even to the martyrs at the very moment, perhaps, that they perish under brutal assault 
A theologian commenting on the apocalypse has said, that which distinguishes the Christian martyr is that he never utters a word against God's creation. In spite of everything, he finds that the things that are very good, he finds that things are very good. Therefore, in spite of everything, in spite of his own situation, he remains capable of joy and even as far as it concerns him, of festivity. The martyr never utters a word against creation. It's good. And that means that even on the worst day of his life, he can still rejoice and he can still be festive because it is still true. Whereas, on the other hand, whoever refuses assent to reality as a whole, no matter how well off he may be, is by that fact incapacitated either for either joy or for festivity. Festivity is impossible to the naysayer. The more money he has, and above all, the more leisure, the more desperate is the impossibility to him. This is also true of the man who refuses to approve of the fact of his own existence, having fallen into the mysterious, ineffable despair from weakness of which Soren Kierkegaard has spoken, and which in the old moral philosophy went by the name of Asidia. More on that tomorrow morning. The slothfulness of the heart. It is a refusal regarding the very heart and fountainhead of existence itself. Because of the despair of not willing to be oneself, to acknowledge one's own creatureliness, which makes man unable to live with himself, he is driven out of of his own house, into the hurly-burly of work and nothing else, into the fine-spun, exhausting game of sophistical phrase-mongering, into incessant, incessant entertainment by empty stimulants, in short, into a no-man's land, which may be quite comfortably furnished. I love that image. He's banished into a no-man's land which might be very comfortably furnished, but which has no place for the serenity of intrinsically meaningful activity, for contemplation, and certainly not for festivity. On the best day, the secularist has no reason to rejoice. And the more luxurious his situation, the more acute the problem. Creation isn't good. The world is not good. Things are not good unless he himself finds them so. Which means he has no real reason to rejoice in anything. And this is why there is true freedom in the biblical view of creation that affirms there is meaning to the world long before you and I show up. Isn't it wonderful that man was made on the sixth day? I love that. For five days of things being done and being spread out, the sea being full of sea creatures and the sky full of birds and all the plants and everything, and man's not there to watch any of it. Not there to approve or disapprove. Nothing. God did it. Yes, it's going to be given to man as a gift, but God delights in the Sabbath 
and surveys all of his work and finds it delightful because it's good. He pronounces it good. And because it's good, it is the source of continual joy and delight for men. It's precious before it contributes to anything. That's the biblical doctrine of creation. And it is the secret, I think, in our culture, the secret to fighting, winning warfare for people who don't actually believe that creation has any meaning at all. The thin, vacuous ennui of our time in particular is so because it doesn't acknowledge the good of the world that God has given There's a reason why James says, let every man be quick to hear and slow to speak. There's a lot to hear, it turns out. We have to pay attention to it before we contribute our voice to it. And this is why I believe that affirmation is the foundation of biblical education. Next to God, creation is our dearest friend. Created to reveal the glory of God and to teach us about Him. One of the things I love to tell my students is that this is why the Bible is so full of the world. For instance, Psalm 1 tells us that we can learn a lot about righteousness by looking at trees. The righteous man is like a tree firmly planted by rivers of living water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You can learn about righteousness by looking at trees. Trees manifest what righteous men are supposed to be like. The Bible's shot full of that kind of thing. The more we study and learn about the world, the more we come to understand and appreciate the God who made it, because He made it. Just step back from that and realize one of the greatest gifts about creation is that we had nothing to do with it. It was his idea. He designed it the way it is and he gave it to us. And our first job, Capon says, is to learn to love it like he does. And when we learn to love it like he does, we actually have something to defend. Something to fight for. Something that's precious to us. That we're willing to interpose our lives between it and and the threat that would take it away. So I believe that this is how we will create students, young men and young women, who have courage to stand and protect for what they love, even when evil men try to take it away. You can't fight if you don't love. Cultural, Christian cultural leadership must be rooted in the love of what is good. Instilling this kind of love and the freedom it entails is one of the greatest purposes that we have as people who are called to raise up the next generation in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Let me remind you, Chesterton said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him.
Of course, this means that one of the most important things that we do as the people of God is to cultivate those loves. To learn to love things the way that God does. And to stand for them and to cherish them the way that he does. They're the gifts that he gives to us. And I think the reason, part of the reason that we often fight so ineffectively and why we lose our children, frankly, a lot to the world is because we don't actually believe we have much to defend. And so the enemy plunders our children. Christians would do a much better job, I believe, in raising up children that have the resistance to a culture that tells them lies about the world if they love what God has given them and they've been cultivated, trained, and taught how to love that world and to see it as their inheritance to hold on to it, and to protect it against the lies that are being told about it by the world around us. They would see the hollowness of those who don't believe the world has any thickness or being or meaning as being lies that enslave, that make you poorer rather than richer. Kids that know that in their bones, young men and women that are ones that will go to fight the enemy, and they will do so with confidence because they know their inheritance. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I love teaching young men and women. It's one of the reasons I love teaching at New St. Andrews College is having the opportunity to do that because I think it is one of the most important tasks. Those of you that are involved in education, and I think that means all of you, because you all have children in one way or another, you're all involved in that task. This is the central reality of that. So remember, Things are precious before they are contributory because God made all things good. Can we pray for our time this evening and and ask the Lord to bless our reflections on all of this? Father, thank you so much that you have made the world dazzling. And you've made the world dazzling not to distract us from you, but to lead us to you. Thank you, Lord, that in Christ, the God-man, you have restored the world and made it our friend. And Father, I pray that you would teach us how to value and to care for and to pay attention to the good things that you have given to us. I pray that you would help us to cultivate a love for them for what they are and that you would guard our hearts from imposing false meanings on them. And I pray, Father, that you would raise us up to be men and women because of our love for you and our love of the gifts that you have given to us, that you would make us courageous, that you would make us faithful to interpose our lives in defense of the things that we love. I pray that you would use our efforts, Lord, to change our culture, which is rapidly running away from you into the desolate wilderness of nothing. And you would bring them back so that they might sit at the feast and taste and see how gracious and good you are. 
Thank you for all of these things. Please bless them to us, Lord. May we be hearers of the word, doers of the word, and not merely hearers only. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.